This episode is brought to you by Loyola University Maryland's Master of Theological Studies. Offering an academically rigorous and rewarding education setting with small class sizes and renowned faculty. Learn more and apply at loyola.edu slash theology. Again, that is loyola.edu slash theology. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hey, Ashley. Happy Holy Week. Happy Holy Week. How are you doing? Doing all right. Um, it's a weird Holy Week for everyone, obviously, yep. but, you know, making the best of it. Yeah. Getting on the podcast, recording some... Some news, some interviews. <laughs> Speaking of, who are we talking to this week? This week, we are talking with uh, Laura Kelly Finucci, the director of the Communities of Calling Initiative. Um, Laura is a writer and a columnist for Catholic News Service, but most recently has gone viral for a poem she wrote in response to coronavirus. Right. So she wrote a poem that she posted on Instagram and Facebook called When This Is Over about um, all the things that she will no longer take for granted when we are um, on the other side of this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, And she posted it in the morning and by the next day, millions of people had shared it, um, including some famous people, Cory Booker, uh, Nicole Kidman, uh, Donald Trump's daughter, Tiffany. So, Keith Urban. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and she's been on, she was on the Kelly Clarkson so- show, uh, NPR's Morning Edition. So she's made the rounds and we're very excited to have her on Jesuitical because when she's not uh, writing viral poems, she, she blogs a lot about um, prayer and parenting and bringing um, the sacred to life in our everyday lives and in our homes, which I think is something we're all struggling to do, uh, especially yes. this Holy Week when we when we can't be in church and with, with our friends and communities. Yeah, so it's a great conversation about, especially right now, about trying to, you know, pay attention to the sacramentality of uh, home life. So that's coming up, uh, but first... But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes out of Australia, where on April 7th, Cardinal George Pell was released from prison after Australia's high court overturned his conviction on five counts of child sexual abuse. Yes, this closes at least a chapter in a story that we've been following for quite a long time. Um, So it's worth right now just sort of recapping the the facts of the case, and how we got here. Right. So in December 2018, Cardinal Pell was found guilty of molesting two 13-year-old choir boys in 1996. This is when he was the new archbishop in Melbourne. Um, And until this week's acquittal, uh, this conviction made him the most senior official in the Catholic Church uh, to be charged and convicted with clerical sexual abuse. Um, he, you know, like he was a pretty close advisor to Pope Francis before he was in standing trial in Australia. He served as the prefect for the Secretariat for the Economy and one uh, was one of Pope Francis's nine cardinal advisors. 
Yes, so very high-ranking official in the church. And last March, he was sentenced to six years in prison. Um, And before walking free this week, he'd spent over 400 days in prison, mostly in solitary confinement. And he's maintained his innocence throughout this years-long trial and appeals process. Right. But this week, a panel of seven judges uh, decided that there was a significant possibility that an innocent person has been convicted, and they got— they. Uh, reversed the charges, and he walked free. Um, The Vatican, when this news came out, reaffirmed its confidence in the Australian justice system, which it's stated from the beginning that its approach was going to be to wait and see what what came out in the courts. Um, But it welcomed the decision um, and reaffirmed its commitment to preventing child abuse. Yeah, and this made its way through basically the entire Australian legal system and finally, like all the way up to the high court before it was overturned. Um, Cardinal Pell, um, for his part, upon his release, released a statement saying that he still holds no ill will towards his accuser and, quote, I do not want my acquittal to add to the hurt and bitterness so many feel. There's certainly hurt and bitterness enough. Right. And he he left the prison and went to stay at a Carmelite convent uh, outside of Melbourne, where he will be for the foreseeable future, because like a lot of countries, there are restrictions on uh, travel and and community life because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. When he was first convicted, the Vatican said it was going to launch its own investigation into Cardinal Pell uh, through the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, it's unclear now if that's going to move forward. They were waiting for the case to g- move through the appeals process. Um, and according to our Vatican correspondent, Jerry O'Connell, um, there's a sense that now that he's spent 400 days in prison, that maybe that is going to be the end of the Vatican investigation. Yeah, so that's still a little unclear. And also unclear is what is coming next from the Australian civic side, because the Royal Commission Inquiry into Institutional Child Sex Abuse, which was a years-long investigation into systematic abuse and cover-up of sexual abuse in the country, not just in the Catholic Church, but the rest of society. Um, It's yet to publish the part of its report that relates to Cardinal Pell because it was trying to avoid influencing the trial. That is likely to come out now and expected to be highly critical of Cardinal Pell's handling of abuse cases when he was archbishop. Right. And there are also a number of civil claims that are expected to make their ways through the courts in the coming months and years. So this is definitely not over. Um, so that's a lot of information and facts, uh, but we thought it was important to, to, to lay those out and then talk about this in the wider context of the sex abuse crisis in the church. And I think it's important to distinguish between um, what is right and just in terms of the criminal justice system and what the church needs to atone for its record on sexual abuse and move forward protecting vulnerable people. So it could... it seems to be the case that this was not a well-argued case for conviction against Cardinal Pell. Um, I'm not an expert in the case, but a lot of the commentary I've seen um, suggests that the the evidence was not strong enough to really get rid of any um, reasonable doubt. So it can be the case that that this is the right decision, that he should walk free, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily declared innocent of all wrongdoing in terms of how he handled sexual abuse allegations in the church. Yeah, and, and, it, and it says something that the high court was unanimous in its decision, um, too, that there certainly was at least a conceivable doubt that the case as it was presented w- didn't actually happen. Um, but I think 
you know, there are some lessons that we can draw out of this high profile case. One being that I, I, I don't know if it shows progress that a senior Vatican official was, he wasn't protected by the nature of his office from being investigated and put through the criminal justice system, right? I mean, he could have been kept in Rome to withstand all of this from happening. And I mean, that would have sent a, a very different message um, in terms of how seriously the church takes some of this stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point, Zach. I do think the Vatican has been kind of uneven in its response. On the, on the one hand, it has withheld judgment. It's placed its trust in the justice system um, and has continuously reaffirmed its commitment to pursuing cases of abuse and preventing future cases. And this morning, Pope Francis tweeted from his official account, quote, in these days of Lent, we've been witnessing the persecution that Jesus underwent and how he was judged ferociously, even though he was innocent. Let us pray together today for all those persons who suffer due to an unjust sentence because someone had it in for them. So he didn't say Cardinal Pell's name explicitly, but it seems pretty clear what he was referencing there. And yeah, it, was very it comes much off a bit tone deaf, I would say. Yeah, it was very much interpreted as commenting on, I mean, the most high profile Catholic news that we had this week. Um, I don't know. It just sort of feels like this entire story is in a lot of ways unsatisfying, right? Yeah. It's, it feels tough to say that any type of moral justice was served because we just don't know all of the facts, right? We know right. that what was leveled um, as an accusation is not provable in a human court of law, and that's one thing. But I think the most important lesson coming out of this is the church is going to have to continue on its path of reform and listening to survivors. And that was reflected in what a lot of church leaders in Australia and around the world said. What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, Jesus has died and risen from the dead. <laughs> Again. <laughs> News flash. Breaking. <laughs> so we are recording this on Tuesday. It'll drop in your feeds on Friday of Holy Week and the Triduum. So as we've mentioned before, this is going to be a different Easter experience for a lot of us. We are we are not going to be gathering in our churches. We are not going to be going to Easter egg hunts in our lawns, if that's something you do. So like a lot of you, we are trying to figure out how to have Easter at home. So we thought we'd bring that discussion here. Yeah, I'm honestly a little bummed. I, I feel like one of the things that we can do is sort of honor the grief that we're feeling about not being able to do some of our favorite liturgies this year. Um, I know that I had plans to take some family members to an Easter vigil, some against their will. <laughs> um, people who hadn't been to the three-hour three hour mass yet were a little skeptical of it, but it really is amazing. And next year, you should go for the first time if you've never done it. Um, but, you know, honor that grief and, you know, look to next year. But we have some some ideas about what we're going to do instead. Yeah. One thing I know I'm going to, a lot of parishes have, have made uh, services available online um, for streaming or just on their YouTube pages. Uh, and one tradition in my family has, uh, on Good Friday is to go to the Franciscan Monastery in Washington, D.C., which if you haven't been, I definitely recommend checking it out when this is all over in person. Um, but it's a beautiful monastery that has uh, life-size replicas uh, and not in a cheesy way of of the holy sites in Jerusalem. So it, the church looks like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It has um, a replica of the 
place where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Um, and they do a beautiful Good Friday service um, that mimics what they will do in Jerusalem, enacting the burial of Jesus. Uh, and they're going to be streaming that online. So I'll be able to watch that. Um, you know, it won't be the same, but it's it's an okay substitute. Um, I think a point you were making about honoring the grief that you're feeling, I don't think we need to expect or try to make these online virtual experiences like as profound and meaningful like they just they just aren't going to be for a lot of people like i've i've struggled with the the live stream mass um just not feeling like enough and 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 it's not because we're not in community and that's how the mass is supposed to be celebrated so i think it's important to go into uh I don't know, when you're watching these things to keep in mind that it's it's an extra thing, but it's not the most important thing. Uh, and I think being with whoever you're with uh, or whoever you can connect with, with a phone call or video conferences, that, that's going to be the most important thing this weekend. Yeah. I, in a certain sense, holidays bring a lot of stress for people in normal years. And these are certainly not normal years, right? And so just be, I think, reminding myself and my family to be gentle with each other. And like, if grandpa doesn't know how to work Zoom, that's okay, right? Like, try a little bit, but like, don't kill yourself trying to get the tech to work right and the microphone and the sound and all of these things to all work together. Um, it's already stressful enough. Right. And cook what you can. If the, <laughs> if the grocery store is out of Easter ham, come up with a new tradition for, for what you're going to have. <laughs> yes, but I do think it's important to like, have a a good meal, right? Like do something out of the ordinary from the the rest of your week's routine, right? There should be some kind of feast, I feel like, whether that's at brunch or at dinner, or maybe you've, uh, like uh, our colleague Vivian, uh, have been working on a sourdough starter. I don't really know how sourdough starters work, but maybe start, start it up. <laughs> and then uh, do you have any ideas for what, are you going to stream a mass or? Yes, yeah, so we actually did a, uh, we're going to be spending uh, Easter at my parents' house out in uh, the rural part of Virginia, and we were, we're the internet is not that great. So on Palm Sunday, we did a, a dry run of <laughs> downloading or watching a YouTube mass to see if it worked, and it did. So we'll be watching um, the regular St. Boniface mass on Sunday. I've convinced my parents that it's the best one out there. <laughs> um, but I'm actually really, really looking forward to Easter. Um, I, I've mentioned this before. I haven't been able to see my sister uh, and her husband and my new niece since I've been home in Virginia just because we're taking precautions and putting myself in quarantine for two weeks before I see the new baby. So uh, the Thursday is actually going to be my first time seeing uh my new niece in a while. So I'm very yeah, excited. So I, I honestly couldn't be more excited <laughs> about Easter. I know that a lot of people are in trying circumstances, but I'm very much looking forward to being with my larger family this weekend. That That's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I hopefully, you know, people to the extent they're able or just able to appreciate that like Easter itself as a holiday is sort of like bleak circumstances, but like the most amazing thing happening. Yeah. Right. Um, and not to say that we're all going to get miracles like <laughs> in our personal lives on Sunday, but like trying to like appreciate that Christ is indeed risen is, uh, it, it's worth, it, it is miraculous and it is beautiful and 
it is worth celebrating every day, but especially this year and on this Easter day, I think. And we want to know what you're doing this Easter. So you can go on our Facebook page and let us know there. Uh, send us pictures. Uh, we we are wishing you a very happy Easter. Um, and you will continue to be in our prayers. And we hope we are in yours. Joining us from Minnesota is Laura Kelly Finucci. She is a writer and the director of the Communities of Calling Initiative. She blogs at Mothering Spirit and is the author of several books on parenting, prayer, and vocation. Welcome to Jesuitical, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. No, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I know you have a full house right now. (laughs) We really do. I know everyone is feeling that now, um, that life is different from how it was. But yeah, we've got a brand new baby, so it makes life interesting. (laughs) Yes. And you were up with this brand new baby, I believe, when you wrote a poem recently that that went viral, Um, (laughs) I think it's fair to say. Uh, It is. It's a strange (laughs) metaphor to use, but it is. (laughs) Yeah. Would you mind uh, reading that poem for us first? Yeah, absolutely. When this is over, may we never again take for granted a handshake with a stranger, full shelves at the store, conversations with neighbors, a crowded theater, Friday night out, the taste of communion, a routine checkup, the school rush each morning, coffee with a friend, the stadium roaring, each deep breath, a boring Tuesday, life itself. When this ends, may we find that we have become more like the people we wanted to be, we were called to be, we hoped to be, and may we stay that way, better for each other because of the worst. It's really beautiful. I'm wondering if you could just walk us through what you were feeling and thinking when you got the urge to write some of this down. So um, our youngest son, Isaiah, is six weeks old tomorrow. So I guess half his lifetime ago, <laughs> about, three, <laughs> about three weeks ago, I was you know, up feeding him in the middle of the night and just scrolling through my phone and reading you know, news story after news story. And I could feel myself just getting more and more anxious. And you know, thinking about what a strange world he'd been born into and how as a parent, like I couldn't protect him from this. I couldn't just put him in a bubble and guarantee that everything would be okay. And I finally decided I got to just turn this phone off. I got to just flip off the news. And so since I'm a writer, I always have the notes app open on my phone and I flipped over to that and just thought, well, I'm just going to kind of write this out how I'm feeling. And Um, and, and the poem just kind of came unbidden to be honest. So I just shared it on my Facebook and my Instagram where I do my writing and it just took off like wildfire. I mean, I just had never seen something I write go that viral. So it was really crazy in the midst of all this. I mean, the, all the news feels surreal these days, but to also have, you know, people all over the world reading these words and reaching out to me and and telling them that it did give them some hope for where we are right now was just stunning. So it has been an even stranger (laughs) couple of weeks than what I ever could have pictured um, when we first brought that new baby home. (laughs) So just to 
just to clarify, you were up in the middle of the night feeding your newborn and you wrote a poem that went yeah. viral. <laughs> yeah. I, All right, I just want to, like from my understanding, I've not been a parent of a young child before, but when you hear people talk about it, it sounds like they're going through war um, in terms of like sleep deprivation and stuff. So I, I just wanted to like make sure that was definitely the case. <laughs> yes. And I mean, I have to laugh too, but I think honestly, this is just, this is kind of the way I cope with the world as a writer. And weirdly enough, I find that even though I am extremely sleep deprived right now, I I kind of can always write when I have a new baby. So I found that even though in pregnancy, my brain kind of gets fried by the time pregnancy is done, I'm like, I just want to write something. So even if it is in the middle of the night, the words can still kind of come. But yeah, don't worry. I'm also still like, opening the fridge and staring at it sometimes like what did I need in here like what <laughs> what's going on so it all balances out <laughs> I definitely share that that hope that this will change something in us it seems so clear that that we're realizing that our you know the individual lives we lead are are not enough um but I'm wondering how you would characterize that that better on the other side of this. What would that look like to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I guess I've thought about this a lot over the past week, especially in thinking about grief. I've, I'm hearing more of that language out there that this is something we're grieving collectively as well as individually in our lives. And I look back in my own life on grief and my husband and I lost twin daughters four years ago, um, shortly after their births. And, and that was a grief that has marked my life forever, you know, between a before and an after. And, and I've seen, so I've seen in my own life, how something so huge really can change the person you are. Now, of course I can like, I still lose my temper, my kids all the time, right? Like I'm still forgetful in all the ways that you know, my flaws and all of that are still there. And yet there are changes in perspective that I have, that I know are different in my life now, since that experience of losing our daughters, like there is a deeper empathy. There's a, there's a keener understanding of what really matters and what is just like, it's just not that important. That I can't imagine the pain of, um, losing twins like that. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm wondering if, as you are thinking back at that experiences in terms of relating it to how society is sort of dealing with grief right now, um, are there other lessons that you learned then that you think would apply to what people are experiencing now? It, 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 albeit in a very different way. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the refrain that was stuck in my head for months, if not years after that was, you know, it wasn't supposed to be like this. Hmm it was not supposed to be like this. You know, that I was a person that kind of figured maybe life would kind of turn out okay for me. I mean, it just speaks to the privilege that I had, right? As like a person who had had an education and a stable, supportive family and enough food to eat. And and just thinking like, gosh, you know, when I decided I wanted to have kids, that would work out too, right? And to think, no, that whole experience just broke open every thin notion I had about, you know, what life was supposed to be and who God was in all of that. And I think I came to see, you know, that suffering is something that touches all of our lives to different degrees, of course. But 
we'll all know loss and we'll all know grief. So I think right now we're in a big moment of, it wasn't supposed to be like this. Like, you know, as Americans, weren't we always supposed to have access to stores and entertainment? And, you know, weren't our jobs just what drove everything? How could we ever picture not going to the office every day? And, and yet here we are in a moment where nearly everything that we took for granted in our lives now looks quite different. So I, I think that grief does teach us in ways that we're just going to have these experiences where we come up against our own limits or we come up against very unexpected pain and suffering and we have to figure out how to go through or we'll just stay stuck in that, you know? I think grief, like what you experienced and what a lot of people are going through, it's a very, it's a very lonely experience. Um, and now we're grieving in a place of enforced loneliness. Um, so I'm wondering how you think how people can help each other and their families and communities, maybe what role the church can play in helping people, um, you know, survive through this grief and, and come to a some some place of peace. Yeah, well, so my, my husband and I ended up writing a book together that came out of the loss of our twins. And we wanted to write a book on grief for couples because in our experience, there weren't a lot of resources for fathers and there weren't a lot of things that talked to couples together. And one of the things that struck me as we did the research for that book and talked to so many couples who had gone through you know, infertility and miscarriage and stillbirth and infant loss was that every one of them felt so alone. And that they'd gone through this experience and felt like so few people in their lives understood. And yet, as we were doing all this research, we just couldn't believe actually how common it was. I mean, which is heartbreaking, but so many people do go through that. And yet, how astonishing that they feel that they're alone. And so I think one thing we can do for each other is simply to hear each other's stories. I mean, just to listen to each other in this moment is so important because we're each grieving losses that are big and small. You know, my niece is a high school senior and she's not going to get to go to prom or graduation or any of those things. And that's huge. I mean, if you're a high school senior, that's everything. And I, I want to hear, just just give her a place to, to say what a huge loss and disappointment that is. And then at the same time, you know, there are people in our community who are dying from this, whose loved ones are dying. And how are we going to hear their stories and not just have them be, you know, the latest numbers and the latest updates on the news. But in this time, like we just need to witness each other's emotions and, and you know, responses to all of this. You write a column and have written a column for a while now on uh, practicing your faith at home. I believe it's called, it's faith at home, right? And it's syndicated yeah. across the country. Um, now more than ever, it feels like uh, it's important to build up that um, sacramental presence in our, in our homes, the only places we can go. Um, in light of like, especially as we're moving into the triduum, has the current situation changed your understanding of the ways that you've uh, sacramentalized your own home? Oh, yeah. I think it just deepens it. You know, I think that I have come to see how God is present to us in ordinary lives and in ordinary ways. I mean, just through marriage, through the experience of becoming a mom, like there's so much that you know, I went to graduate school and studied theology and then I had this baby <laughs> it was like, wait, what do you mean? Like I used to take classes on baptism and now I'm trying to figure out what does it mean in this baby's life? I think learning that God 
I mean, if God is present to us everywhere and always, God is right here with us in the walls of our apartment or our house, you know, it's not limited to the holy places that we've deemed, you know, this is church. This is where the sacred happens or God shows up, you know, things like bread and water and wine and oil are holy and, and God reaches out to us through that. So how does God show up in our, you know, in an everyday Eucharist at our table and to bless that food and how it nourishes us to do God's work? So I'm wondering if you have any any tips for helping us make um, our our virtual experiences with the liturgy um, meaningful. Oh, yeah, amen to that. I have a friend who's a theologian at at St. John's here in Minnesota, and he just shared a really powerful reflection about how this time is teaching us about absence in the sacraments. Like we always think of sacraments around God's presence, right? But even in the presence of those sacraments, there's still an absence that we long for because it's kind of like that full longing for God, right? We want to just be all in. It's like that longing for heaven or something. And I think those words really made me think, wow, I've got to sit with this this kind of ache and this emptiness. And it's okay that this doesn't feel the same. It shouldn't. Like we're not in the pews with people and we're not, you know, tasting the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. Like we're it shouldn't, it's probably good that it doesn't feel the same because we're going to long for the real thing. And I think, I mean, something as simple as like lighting a candle or really singing the songs, as weird as that sounds to be like responding to your computer screen. There's something I think in, in trying to pull some of those practices, like we are a church that does call and response in our liturgies, right? Like all of those prayers depend on, you know, not just the priest saying them to himself, but the, the, the people responding. So I don't know. I think sometimes just bringing some elements of that to say, like, maybe I don't watch mass on the laptop in my bed. Like, maybe I go and put it on a table and light a candle and just kind of say, what is this like to try to be present to it a little bit more? But also to say, it's okay that I want the real thing. There's no substitute. Wondering how many how many kids are you at home with right now? Five. Five. Okay. <laughs> Uh, do you have any do you have any specific tips for parents maybe that are having a hard time trying to like I'm sure I, that you have you might have all these grand plans about what you're going to do um, for like your home liturgy. And then, uh, you know, I, I myself throw wrenches in those plans, but I can, you know, five children. Be tough. Um, yeah, the first Sunday that the, the churches were closed and we didn't have mass, my husband and I were like, the kids were as bad at like mass in our living room on the laptop as they were at church. Like we had to take the two-year-old out and like people weren't paying attention and they started fighting. It was just so classic. It was, it was like that meme about like, oh, we all thought we just needed time to clean up our homes. And it turns out the problem wasn't time. It's actually us. It was like, (laughs) the problem is just us. Um, you know, I think it's just such a time to give ourselves grace and to know that God is pouring out grace abundantly. (laughs) And so it's okay if you didn't do it on time or it didn't look the way you want. You know, I think we're still showing our kids, we care about this. Our family prays together. 
like God is present to us in this. That's the stuff that matters, not whether we all watched 60 minutes of our pastor (laughs) preaching at us. So yeah, it's a time for grace for sure. I have a family friend who they're doing pajama masses where they just, they let the kids stay in their pajamas, but they do the readings. And I was just thinking, there's no way you're going to convince them to put their like nice Sunday clothes on (laughs) when all this is over. (laughs) They've experienced the pajama mass. It's what I keep saying to our bosses about our dress code too. (laughs) I do think though, like the kids, they're always asking why we can't have donuts after mass. And I'm like, oh, we can't until we go back to church, guys. We just don't have donuts this Sunday. Uh, (laughs) Carrot stick. You Uh, know it. (laughs) What is is your Easter Sunday going to look like? Do you have anything special planned? Oh, wow. I don't know. I've been trying to to get the kids to think, guys, what are we going to do? They do love Easter Vigil, our two older Mm -hmm. ones. And so I said to them, guys, I know you love the fire outside. I know you love all the readings. Like Saturday night, even though it's Minnesota and it's not super warm yet, like we're going to have a bonfire. We're going to bundle up in blankets. We're going to just read the readings outside around the, the bonfire. Like that's cool. You know, that's that's just as much as we can do this year. So I don't know. We'll probably let him eat a bunch of candy and do an egg hunt in the backyard. And <laughs> But it's hard. I, it, it won't look like every other Easter. And so I think to make the most of it um, and let them eat a lot of extra candy is probably what all we can do. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> Wait, so just real quick, you, you, have, you have children that love the Easter vigil, like the two to three hour mass. Isn't that cr- like it makes no sense. I think they like that they get to stay up late. Mm, they yeah. get they get the candles in the pew. So it's sort of like fire. It's kind a of like dang- a weapon. There's a little danger. Yeah. yeah. There's danger. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they do, you know, our church does full immersions. So to, to, to see the, the adults get baptized and go all the way in, I think they just think this is a crazy mass. I don't know what's <laughs> going on here. So yeah, they always fall asleep, but it's still fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We do have one final question for you. Um, we ask all our guests this, if you could canonize one person living or dead, Catholic or not, uh, fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why? Oh man, is that a good question? Okay. I'm sure people say this to you all the time because she's such a favorite, but I do keep thinking about Dorothy Day in these times. This, that story about how I think she was like eight years old when there was the, the earthquake in San Francisco where she lived and she was watching all the boats come across the bay and people were welcoming, you know, strangers into their homes after all of that. And, and she said that that was the first time in her life. I mean, here she was eight years old. That was the first time she realized that the adults knew how to help each other all along. And I was just wrecked by that story. When I first heard it, I thought, yeah, we know how to help each other, but we just don't do it most of the time. And so I keep thinking of her. I keep thinking of eight-year-old Dorothy Day these days thinking, how do I show up like that? How do I even show my kids that I know how to help others in this time? Like this is what it means to live out the way of Christ is to go to the people on the margins to care for each other all the time. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to be throwing that big old party someday when Dorothy gets canonized because she gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. It is certainly almost inevitable, it seems. So that party will definitely, <laughs> she's definitely canonized among Jesuitical guests. You are not, you sure. are not the first, but that was a very, that was a good story. So that was the first time yeah. we've told that story on this pod for sure. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Laura, where can people find you and your work? Where do you want to direct them to? Sure. So my website is laurakellyfinucci.com and I blog at motheringspirit.com. So you can find me there or on my social media. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This was fantastic. No, thank you. So great to talk to you. Thank you, Laura. Absolutely. Time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I have a consolation, one that I, I've been saving from the Holy Land to talk about. Um, today is, when this is dropping, is Good Friday, um, but it's also my late grandmother's uh, first birthday after she died. And I remember I realized that very shortly after she died and just thinking, well, that's going to suck a lot. (laughs) Like that's already like good Friday is already a really sad day and it's going to be even sadder knowing that we're not celebrating with our grandma. And when I was in the Holy land, I was thinking about that and just thinking a lot about my grandma. And when I was in the church of the Holy sepulcher, um, they have the spot on Calvary where Christ is, they they believe in all evidence points to where Christ was crucified. And I remember having an experience praying there, praying about Christ's death and about my grandma's death. And I sort of stood up and walked over and I had this realization that just, you know, maybe 20 yards over there is the same spot where Christ rose from the dead too. And having those two spots like right next to each other and I could see both of them brought together this paschal mystery in a way that is still I'm still unraveling in my own prayer in my own life but I was brought a deep sense of consolation that knowing that you know she rose like Christ did and we death does not have the final say and love wins and so that is my consolation this good friday and this easter yeah i know that you had a kind of <laughs> rude welcome back to the United States after your time in the, the Holy Land, uh, and you were worried about kind of losing the graces that you had experienced there. So I'm glad, I'm glad that's coming back. Yeah, it, it's Friday. Uh, me too. Me too. <laughs> what do you got, Ashley? Uh, I also have a consolation. Um, like a lot of people, I've been having these conversations with with my colleagues and family about like you know, how as a Christian, it's hard in these times um, to feel like we're helpless to help others. And like, we want to go out and and feed the poor and help the sick, but we're stuck in our homes and how awful that is. Um, And I was beginning to like, I don't know, it's very easy to say that and to want to help people in the abstract. Um, And I was kind of got this guilty feeling um, when I realized that there were people in my own house that I wasn't extending that same charity to. Um, my my 93-year-old grandfather is living with us um, now. Uh, and in these first two weeks when I'm back, I'm, I'm trying to keep my distance from him um, for, for his own uh, well-being. Um, but I realized that I was kind of using that that health precaution to kind of 
I don't know, just kind of ignore him and because it can be difficult for me to interact with him. So I was very much just like keeping my distance physically. And also, I mean, like, you know, I could still talk to him from 10 feet away if I wanted to, but I was kind of just like hanging out in my room. So this guilty feeling that I'm sure was my conscience and God saying, you know, it's great and good for you to want to be helping people in the streets, but what about the people in your own house? Um, prompted me to kind of check my, change my attitude um, and really try when I, when I can't be outside helping others to just be as present and patience and gentle and kind with the people closest to me. Um, which can sometimes be the <laughs> the hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that I was glad that God had challenged me in that way this week because yeah. I really do have a lot to be grateful for, including um, my family that I'm quarantined with. Well, I think the close quarters are, you know, they're <laughs> making making saints of us all in some ways, yeah. or or the other way. <laughs> But yep. it, you're, I think you're right. It's a good opportunity to be grateful. Yep. All right. I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. Happy Easter, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>